Hello and welcome to New Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gathered here. Hope you had a great Halloween and an even better mischief night. Or cabbage night or goosey night if you're in certain areas of Passaic or Bergen counties. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun over on the Patreon. We put up a video of Don's Bagels and someone left a comment saying that it was straight up pornography. So go join patreon.com slash New Jersey is the world. Now listen up. We all know New Jersey is the angriest state. Maybe it has the biggest chip on its shoulder. But we're making our play. We think it's the nerdiest state too. You might not believe it. But look, we did our research. I was convinced. Maybe you will be as well. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. It's Chris Gethard. Welcome to New Jersey is the world. I'm, I got to tell you, I've been having a long couple of days. I'm very happy to be here with my, uh, my old pals, my old childhood friends. Mike D., how you doing today? I'm ridiculously sore from running the Atlantic City Marathon. And I'm paying for it. You ran the marathon. Congrats again. And you were just telling me before we started recording, you the route took you not once, yeah. but twice past the infamous Lucy the Elephant, one of my favorite New Jersey landmarks. It's true. For the rest of my life, my second pass of Lucy the Elephant will always be remembered where I basically was said to myself, why am I making myself do this? I can end this at any time. <laughs> I've said that so many times and I don't run marathons. I just say that like probably twice a week when I get depressed. <laughs> it's where my head's at is that I think that's a funny joke. But congrats again. It's uh, such an accomplishment and we were all thrilled for you. Yeah. Kudos, Mike D. Nikki Bonaduce, I saw you the other night. You came to my shows in White Eagle Hall and you were the king of the goddamn <laughs> green room. You ran the party in the green room. No. You absolutely no, did. Not at all. Life not at a goddamn party back there. That must have been Bonaduce must have been there. Bonaduce was there. Carson just jumped it was in. All, I blame Carson for everything. Carson came back, hung out. And my green rooms are usually just me being nervous before a show and the other comedians kind of just trying to like avoid it. You came back, all of a sudden, everybody's having drinks, laughing, telling stories, like what people want their social interactions to be. It was great. I think I described an Italian hot dog at least six times to four You did, people, and you so. kept telling people, you know what pizza bread is, right? And they kept being polite, going like... Because yes. it's, a, it's the defining, yeah, it's like the defining thing that fucking... Nobody just, outside of Essex County knows what pizza bread I'm, is. That's why you have to explain it to them. So I tell them what it is, and I tell them the shape, and you cut it in half. But no, that was an awesome time. Mike D, I don't know how, like, I've hated running. Like, even as an athlete, I fucking hate running. I hate running now. And, like, the only time I'm ever going to run again is, like, to save my life or, like, to get away from the cops or something. But that's it. Like, besides that, I always say deep down inside I want to run. But I just know I don't have that, like, drive. I don't, after five miles, that would be, like, that's it for me. Uh, the Atlantic City Boardwalk, I think, is pretty used to seeing people running. That's true. That's that's my guess. Now, Mike D, tonight's topic, you picked it. I feel like you tend to pick our best topics. You you tend to best in, invent the best ones. It's simple. You want to go to bat and make an argument that we are actually living in nerd Jersey and that ner New Jersey is the nerdiest of the 50 states. I was trying to make a pitch to someone that <laughs> that I that I talk to often who is not from the US. And they couldn't understand New Jersey. So I tried to take the high road and explain 
all the really smart things that come out of New Jersey, besides Italian hot dogs and Bruce Springsteen. Hey, we got Bell Laboratories. Hey. It, exactly. it was one of the first things that came to mind for me was Bell Labs was no joke. Right? I mean, I think you, you can make a very serious argument that New Jersey invented music because the phonograph was invented here. <laughs> We invented sex because Viagra was invented here. We essentially invented modern drugs because the pharmaceutical industry was invented here. Mm. And we invented rock and roll because Les Paul invented the electric guitar and he's a Jersey guy. So I would argue that those four things alone make it nerd Jersey. And got the light bulb too, man. Yeah. And when you think about cinephiles, when you think about people who are nerdy about film, we invented films. Um, Black Mariah. The Black Mariah, West Orange, New Jersey, Edison's first filmmaking studio. I think there's a lot to be discussed here about the idea of New Jersey's nerdiest, nerdiness. And uh, I really like the topic. Maybe since, because you put it in the outline, it was one of the first things I thought of. And it was one of the first things Nick said right away. Maybe we should just skip right to Bell Labs because <laughs> Bell Labs is something that is not on the tip of everyone's tongue anymore. It's something that you find that when you read a lot about New Jersey, you start to see it mentioned constantly. But I also know when you read a lot about like the history of computing comes up constantly, you read about technology, you read about science. I'm very uh, obsessive about long form journalism. Mike D, it's one of the things you and I have bonded about in life. And in particular, there's a lot of great journalism about the hacking community and you cannot read about the hacking community without Bell Labs coming up at some point. It, so much of modern computing goes back to Bell Labs. Do you want to explain a little bit about what Bell Labs is or was? Yeah, I mean, so the way that when people talk about the birth of computing, the birth of the internet, it's you know become very trendy in all these pieces in the last 10 or 15 years to talk about about Xerox Xerox Park right which is Xerox Palo Alto Research Center which is what Silicon Valley came from but really when you trace a little bit back in New Jersey and Bell Labs that's where Unix was invented and we won't go super far down this rabbit hole but Unix was you know basically the first multi-user networking operating system. And right now, more or less the entire backbone of the internet runs on Linux, which is just a slight, you know, more modern variation of Unix. So there would not be an internet at all without Bell Labs in New Jersey. And that's also where the transistor was invented, was at Bell Labs. So you wouldn't even have the modern hardware for computers without, without Bell Laboratories. And at one point, I mean, the campus they had in New Jersey, at one point they had around 6,000 engineers working there. Yeah. I mean, sick, I don't, where else do you have 6,000 engineers in one place right now? Not, not too many places. And this is going back to the 40s and 50s. And let's be clear, this is in um, Holmdel, New Jersey. Although right. they also had uh, locations in Crawford Hill, Deal, Freehold, Lincroft, Long Branch, Middletown, Neptune, Princeton, Piscataway, Red Bank, Chance, Red Bank Chester, and Whippany. Yeah, Chester, I was always familiar with that one. Like, because I always drove by it, and the running joke was the telephone pole farm that everybody sees in the yeah. drive by there. That's where they grow telephone poles. Yeah. Every I worked with this guy, and he came in. He was a sales guy for surveying equipment, and we started talking. And like he does this as like kind of a side gig, but his main thing is that he works at Bell Labs. 
and they use this crazy 3D scanning live action like adjustment on these bolts for these like really intricate um, uh, pieces of equipment that have like whatever high speed electrons or whatever like that. So as they're torquing the bolt, like it's scanning it, it's like more accurate than they used to do it like like traditional sort of um, surveying methods and measuring distance, whatever. Now they do it like a live real time like scanning stuff and all that stuff is going on, you know, right here, which is really cool because I mean, listen, I, I want those people here. I want those people doing those things like that's what I think people forget about. You know, it's important. I want to just list some awards. Um there's been a lot of awards rooted at Bell Labs. I'll start with some of the ones you might not expect. An Academy Award was once won at Bell Labs, 1937. The Academy Award for Scientific and Engineering Achievements on Speaker Design used for hi-fi sound reproduction. A Grammy, again, for a technical Grammy for Outstanding Technical Contributions. That was in 2006. There's been five Emmy Awards from from uh, Bell Labs due to pioneering work uh, in, in implementation and deployment of the DVR, all sorts of technical stuff. The Turing Award, which this is an important one. This is a, an annual prize given by the Association for Computing Machinery. Um, there's been five Turing Awards between 1968 and 2020 associated with Bell Labs researchers. And there have been, the big one, nine Nobel Prizes that trace back what? to Bell Labs and their works. The first one was on 1937. Clinton J. Davison shared the Nobel Prize in physics for demonstrating the wave nature of matter. Wow. And then 1956, three uh, researchers for inventing the first transistors. Right there you go, transistors. I'm not a smart man. I know those are important. 1977, 1978, 1997, 98, 2009, 2014, 2018. So obviously this is, some of these go past what we think of as the home Dell campus, but this legacy of Bell Labs in New Jersey, nine Nobel prizes coming out of this one entity. All the, and all the modern microchips that we have now, all they really are is a bazillion super shrunken down transistors on a piece of silicone. So, I mean, the li- like that's literally technically what it is. And that's, and also Bell Labs invented C++, the, the programming language. And what's interesting about that is it's, it's, it's what they call like it. I mean, it does a bunch of things, but it's an embedded programming language, which means you can actually put it and it will run off a chip. So you can have things like video games and pinball machines. And, Nice. When you talk about more of the underground stuff, I was talking before about how I've read a lot about hackers. It's just like something that I'm personally fascinated by. And Bell Labs used to print technical journals. And this was for four men out in the field working on phone systems. This was for, um, you know, just to basically say everything they're building is like a system. And this was stuff that explained the system. And a lot of these technical journals would wind up in public libraries or college libraries in particular. And a lot of the phone freaking community, which was kind of the precursor to computer hackers, people who hacked the phone system, realized this. And it was a known thing that a lot of these libraries were asked to return their technical journals because they were getting stolen because a lot of people were figuring out the infrastructure of the phone system. And 
you know, it's kind of funny. It, you know, it's not as above board as saying nine Nobel prizes or they invented this programming la language. But if you look at the legacy of hackers and phone freaks and how much kind of the underground work tied directly into the development of the internet and all of it, the Bell Labs technical journals, just right there, the internet would not exist if there weren't basically like kids and iconoclasts everywhere stealing that stuff and using it to figure out the system on their own. That all goes back to Bell Labs too. And I think that's important. There might even be, there's people we know, some of them might even be on this podcast right now who in the nineties would go to Radio Shack, buy phone dialers, replace the crystals and sell them to people at West Orange High School so they could make toll free calls home to family in Israel. I mean, there, that might be a thing that happened. There's a whole thing in the outline that we will discuss later about early adventures in the internet. Um, That's crazy. I really love this topic. I mean, Mike D, you also mentioned the pharmaceutical industry, which has long had a stronghold in um, New Jersey. And I know that better than anybody. I've talked publicly about this a little bit, never on the podcast, the pharmaceutical uh industry in North Jersey is, is a huge, huge thing. And my father, his career was spent largely in pharmaceuticals. My father, real Jersey guy. My dad worked at the A&P supermarket on Main Street in West Orange, uh, put himself through Montclair State, paid his way through Montclair State while working at the A&P. And uh, after he graduated, he got a job at a place called Graver, which is in Newark, New Jersey. And all I remember from my early days of my father's life is he, he wore a blue work shirt and he'd come home with like putty on his hands and his shirt that smelled so much like fish. And I asked him within the past year, like, what was, what was your job at Graver? And Graver basically makes... Production, right? Well, it's crazy, man. They basically, they're based out of Newark. And it, what he was telling me is they basically make sand-like substances that are used in nuclear reactors to help contain nuclear material. So like nuclear facilities from all over the world are contracting this company from New Jersey to help them process all this nuclear shit. I, it's way above my head. My dad kept working, got eventually, he just kept going, getting graduate degrees, night school. I mean, you guys knew my dad growing up. He was legendarily a tired man. Like, Mike, you've <laughs> yeah. made me laugh before saying like, yeah, I feel like you've described my dad as like a real nice guy who you could just tell had had some long days and you didn't want to set him off. Like that was kind of a lot of my friend's impression of my dad. Yes. And I feel like I set him off more than once. <laughs> you, I recently <laughs> caught up with my buddy Lenny. who was like the same, almost the same description of like, I just remember your dad sitting in his recliner chair and just feeling like we should really quiet down because this guy's working hard. Eventually got a PhD I mean, oh my gosh. he worked at Merck, at Shearing Plow, a bunch of the different Jersey pharmaceuticals, but he, uh, he spent most of his career at Pfizer um, up in Parsippany and started real low on the, on the chain there. And I'm telling you, that makes all the difference. Like when you're a guy, like if you're, and I just realized this from like what I do and how, how I enjoy being, like when you're in this shit and you've done everything from the bottom up, you're going to be the best at what you do. There's just... Fucking hands down. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're, oh, you know every process. You know if you're in production or if you get to management level, whatever else. If you've been at the bottom, you're going to understand everything that's going on in the process. And you've seen just about everything. So it's just like 
It makes such a big difference. Yeah, my dad started out kind of, from what I understand, and I hope I don't misrepresent it if he hears this, but kind of started over overseeing a lot of like the operations in some of their like manufacturing plants up in Parsippany. And he, he did a thing for them that he realized they were, Nick is literally mic- got no up, walked away, he's microwaving food as I'm sharing the sentiment. Can you hear that? You oh, can actually loud hear beeps of a, 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 of a major <laughs> appliance? Yeah. Weird that I can hear it. I'm so hungry. I gotta, I'm actually eating pliable and I never eat that shit. My, he first like gained traction there. He like made some adjustments in how they produced Visine that saved the company, company millions of dollars. And that's when he started really raising up. And, oh my gosh. Uh, this of course led to, uh, couple times where there was a deal we had in college which was basically winter break and summer break my dad was like you're working so you get a job on your own or else you're working at pfizer that's awesome i would do that i did it because it was good money but man it was a smart move of my dad because he had me working on the factory floor and i got to see how real people work and real life works and I was just like, okay, like I see the message my dad is sending me. Like, I'm talking like, I mean, and Nick, this is just nothing for you, but it's like, it was pretty shocking for a kid of my constitution and age to be like, up at 5 a.m. Oh, yeah. You know, you go start the car to start melting the ice before you even get in the shower <laughs> because you don't want to be sitting in the car and having your hair freeze. And then you had to go back and say, after that hard lesson, dad, I'm going to be a comedian. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> well, dude, it's funny because I kind of knew it was a really formative thing for me because I knew I was like, if I'm going to do this comedy shit and you want to, I say, this is one of the most New Jersey things of all, man. I was like, I better work as hard as my dad worked, get putting himself through the fucking state school at the A&P. And he put me on a factory floor and I've seen people who don't have as many options as I do and how fucking hard people work. I was the first, you guys will be happy to hear this. So they rotate you around when you're like the kid of one of the management types, you know? And one of the places they would put us all was, was called the women's line. This was the factory. It was, it was Visine production line that a lot of it was, do I agree with saying like, oh, women are working the easy job, that's the women's line? I, I don't think that's probably something that should be said, that's reductive, but it was it was largely women who had worked there for many, many, many years, and they were older now and physically less capable, they'd go on this line, and also the sons and daughters of like the, of the executives who wanted their kids to have jobs or went to break, and I was uh, the first work stoppage injury on the women's line in like three decades. Oh my God. Come on. I fucking fell asleep. It was the whole line was Visine bottles would come through all this machinery to be labeled. And you just, everybody, all the humans working it, you were just watching it to make sure the machines were working right. So my whole job was I stood there with a stick in my right hand. And then there was a thing that twisted the bottles to face a certain way. And if the bottles tipped or jammed up this thing, I just use the stick, knock all the ones that are jamming it up into like the discard bin. And then the machine starts working again. And I was so exhausted working that job one day that I fell asleep standing up. I woke up, the machine was jammed up. I had the stick in my right hand and then just in my sleepy haze, just reached into it with my left hand, barehanded. And I still have, I'll hold it up to camera. I don't know if you can see in the camera. I have a oh my God. scar. On, you see that scar on my pinky? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I do see I that. S- I sliced my finger oh, wow. like a, 
like down to the fucking fat meat. Like I saw like the meat inside Ooh. my finger and they stopped the line and it went from like, you know, every day they updated. We haven't had a work stoppage injury in this many days. And then all of a sudden, like the day I come back, it's oh like my in, God. in two days. <laughs> and my father was just mocked universally. No, that doesn't even, my brother once tried to rebel. They said you had to wear long pants and you couldn't wear shorts. And he was working there in the summer and he's like, we're working in a factory and it's so hot. And he left the house in khaki pants because he knew, because my dad was already like at work for two hours. He's a workaholic, but he knew my mom would have been like, you take the fucking shorts off. But he brought a utility knife, my brother. <laughs> and then he, he cut these no, shorts up, pants up no. and tried to make homemade shirts. But you guys know my, bro my it's not like my brother is a, uh, he's got a lazy eye. Like he's, these shorts were like one leg was like four inches shorter than the other. And he got a call. My mom got a call from someone who worked with my dad that was like, we're sending Greg home and Ken didn't see him. We got him out of here before Ken saw him. Cause my father would have killed. If he saw my brother oh my walking God. around in these fucking, he would have actually probably bludgeoned him to death on the floor of Pfizer. Oh my God. So I know the pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> And of course, you guys were right there for it. You guys, like in the 90s, back when we were in high school, my family. I remember he didn't want to work there because like he was afraid he was going to get piss tested or something that. Like was that was not my brother. That was Mike D's brother. Was that Franny? Fran, well, we were making like 12 or 13 bucks an hour back in the late 90s. It was good money. College, it was legit, inarguably good money. And it was that stretch where it was really hard to find a job. And I told Franny how much I was making working there and told him the type of stuff he was doing. He's like, I'll drive up and do it. Like, it sounds like it kind of sucks, but we'll be there together. It'll make that a little easier. Especially during the holidays, right? That's perfect. Yeah, but dude, we had to get the piss test. And he found out about some place in Cedar Grove. Oh, for the drink? They would sell you this drink, this goo. Oh, I know all about it. And he went and drank the goo, but it turned his piss like neon blue or something. Neon, neon green. green. Yeah, it turns like neon yeah, green. Yeah, so he took the piss test, and I think he told them, like, you know what? Like, I think when he saw his piss was green, <laughs> he realized, like, word might get back to my dad about this. And he was like, you know, I think I'm, don't even turn it in. Like, I'm pretty sure it's clean, but I don't want this job anyway. He bailed on it. Wow. Well, that's honorable, I guess. But yeah, that's how that stuff, that's all the old stuff with the drinks used to work. Yeah, that's green. I, I once got one at a place in Montclair, but it was like some herbal pills. It wasn't the goo. Franny got the goo up in Cedar Grove somewhere. Yeah, the pills don't work. Yeah, they used to have a, they used to have a regular drink, too. You could buy a GNC if you got it, if you were in a jam. I got a whole terrible story about that. Of course, the, the joyous thing about being at Pfizer um, and having family there was. Like I grew, you guys know the neighborhood I grew up like fine neighborhood, but like definitively like middle class, working class, houses close together. And then Mike D mentioned it. Viagra comes out, nineteen ninety eight, ninety seven, and they had given all, everyone used to get mad because Pfizer used to give stock options instead of cash bonuses at Christmas. People would be like, "Just give us money. Why do we have to go, jump through these hoops?" So then all of a sudden, all these people just cashed in all their, there were fucking forklift operators who had been there for decades, who were millionaires. That's awesome. Good for them. People who were like, I don't know, fucking know how stock options work. And then it was like, here's how they work. Sell them all right now and you'll make $6 million because you've got 40 years worth of stock options you've never done anything with. Right. That you got when they were worth like a quarter a share. Exactly. Good for them. Exactly. And now all of a sudden you've invented pills that get men's dicks hard. 
the greatest stock, the greatest stock explosion you could possibly ask for. Greatest pill ever invented. Anyway, there's my, uh, there's my long run about pharmaceuticals. That's it. End it there. No, I mean, I could also, listen, I could also talk to you forever about how fucking funny it was to work on the women's line of a factory floor winter break leading up to Y2K when it was just all these working class North Jersey broads who just thought the world was going to end. They all teamed up and rented a cabin in Maine together and they would talk about it in front of me kind of in hushed tones. And then they finally were like, just so you know, we don't want it to be weird. We were all, a bunch of us rented a cabin and like, we don't have room for you. You're a good kid, but you're young. You'll survive. We need to get out. <laughs> they all were like going to go hide in the woods for Y2K because they thought it was going to be the fucking apocalypse. It's the best. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, everything. Everybody was ready. They weren't the only people that were planning to hide in the woods for Y2K. Oh, look. I mean, you. We were all at the same party. And Mike D, you told me, here's the car. There's a chest. There's here's where the guns are located. We're going to the Appalachian Trail if shit goes down. That's the worst place to go. What? Why? Appalachian Trail? Why? Because all the other wackos will be up on the Appalachian Trail, plus the people who live up there regularly. I don't know. We were in New Brunswick. That seemed like a real smart place to head. Ah, yeah. Anywhere away from New Brunswick is probably a good idea. Whether it's Y2K or not, figuring out an exit strategy from New Brunswick, real good call. Okay. Even when I go there now, I try to figure out how to get out. Now, of course, Mike, you've also mentioned Johnson & Johnson. From New Brunswick. What will we do without Q-tips? It's really weird because Johnson & Johnson is kind of, um, it's like Rutgers and J&J. Those are the two entities that kind of dominate New Brunswick. Which is Johnson & Johnson. Robert Wood Johnson, Johnson Hospital ties into Johnson & Johnson. Right. The whole- but when you're a Rutgers student, J&J feels so separate and unto itself. No, it only felt separate and unto itself because we were bad at, we were n- not smart. The smart kids at Rutgers all got recruited to J and J. Not the American Studies majors. They used to have like jo- they would have job fairs, and the really smart kids would get great jobs <laughs> right as soon as they graduated to go work at J and J. We were yeah. just never invited to those things. Now, Mike, you've listed some things that were invented in New Jersey. I knew about the first phonograph. Um, didn't know the first steam locomotive was built in Hoboken. I was. I did know the first submarine was built in uh, Passaic County. Swimming around up there by the Great Falls, I believe. Now, the saddest submarine is up there, the USS Ling. Oh, yeah, that. The Ling, don't forget the Ling. (laughs) Never forget the Ling. The first light bulb, famously, but people might not realize Camden, the first condensed soup. And Camden is also uh, his master's voice, right? The phonograph company, the famous picture where everyone thinks it's a very, you've seen this logo, it's a, it's a very cute little dog looking at a, a gramophone speaker. Yeah. And they're like, oh, look at that cute dog looking at the speaker. But what that stands for is HMV, his master's voice. And the way that they got that logo and proved that the phonograph was so amazing was they recorded the voice of the dog's dead master and would play ah. it and the dog would come to the, the gramophone speaker. And that was the proof point for selling that original phonograph. Oof. That's what that logo means, Oof. which is very dark, but very cool at the same time. Yeah. Real dark, real cool. I didn't know that, uh, anti-bio, I, I didn't know that, uh, Rutgers was busting out, antibiotics 
I didn't know that the first long distance dial coast to coast came out of Englewood. There's a Rutgers tomato too. That's true too. It didn't even land on the um, outline. But Nick, you bring up a good point that a lot of food science and agriculture science on the East Coast. Yeah, not just technology. You got to think uh, think outside the box, man. Outside the wires, man. Velveeta, right, was invented at Rutgers. Now that I'm back in the suburbs and I'm obsessing over this lawn, Rutgers is a pretty major <laughs> hub for... Um, a lot of horticultural science and a lot of tracking of like what types of grass blends are growing in the Northeast, what kind of trees can be contained native, what kind of invasive species are making their way onto the East Coast. Like Cook College and Rutgers is one of the major hubs of information for an entire scene that I am becoming aware exists. And believe me when I say there is a very nerdy scene for people who like turf and grass and tree maintenance and Rutgers, big part of it. You may be asking yourself, Chris, have you looked up the fact that you can take a six class course on turf management, even if you're not an active student? Yes, I have. Have I thought about taking it? Yes, I have. Am I going to? Don't know. Don't know. Maybe. That's terrible. No, don't do it. Something to be proud of. You can go to Ag Field Day next year with your head held very high at Cook College. <laughs> Listen, ah, I ah, went to ah. Ag Field Day and had my held head held high when I uh, took a class on animal husbandry where I raised a goat and competed and got uh, second place. I got the red ribbon in my... Get out of here. In my round, I went to the winner's circle where I did not place with my goat. My, my, my course load senior year at Rutgers was ludicrous. Ludicrous. You guys were both gone. Did you slaughter the goat afterwards and eat it? No. The goat had two children. What happened to it? Some other student tended to the goat next semester. Oh, sorry. You don't get to like raise a goat as part of your Rutgers class and then sacrifice it and eat it. Oh, okay. Well, not sacrifice me though. Goat's good. Oh, yeah. You don't have to tell me. I miss it. That's where Gabutzel comes from. That's crazy. Hey, Is Gabagool from New Jersey? The word is, if not the substance. <laughs> Now, even recently, because uh, Mike, you've listed other things. Valium invented here. Barcodes was invented here. Barcodes invented by IBM. That's pretty cool. And then even as recent as 2015, Jersey's making headway in terms of nuclear waste storage. We do a lot of nerdy science shit in this state. You're not wrong. I mean, and we didn't even, even older science, right? I mean, when you, if you ask any person in the U.S., Draw a picture of a scientist. They're going to draw a very poor character of Albert Einstein, mm -hmm. who did a large chunk of his work here in here at Princeton, right? I mean, that is literally the pop definition of a scientist from you know working in New Jersey. I mean, he's not from New Jersey, but he spent but a, you know adopted adopted, adopted son, son for sure. I mean, Princeton alone. You got Princeton, NJIT. And everything that comes out of Rutgers, that's some real nerdiness. But Princeton alone, like, I feel like if we're talking about who's the nerdiest state out of the 50 states, having an Ivy League school hmm. goes a long way. What are the other states? I mean, California, you have Massachusetts. Let's think about, yeah, MIT up in Massachusetts. MIT. And Stanford is a whole other thing, though. UMass. Stanford's a whole thing, but I mean, you got all the stories of. The homebrew computing club that led to Silicon Valley. You got Stanford. Now, North Carolina, you got the research triangle. I mean, to have a research triangle, that's what? Duke, UNC, and a, uh, another school down there. I'm not smart enough to remember off the top of my head. 
These are the states that I think are in contention for nerdiest, probably. Massachusetts has MIT and Harvard. California goes a long way. North Carolina. California. Harvard is not nerdy. Yeah, Harvard, how would you say? What, it's a little bit more what? What would you think here? I mean, I'm not, it's not that people who attend Harvard are not smart, but it's not nerdy. There's a very big distinction between smart and nerdy, which is where I think you can run into trouble. Nerds! You would, you would say Princeton, fit, Princeton, Yale, those fit the nerdiness. I would say Yale even less no, than Harvard. MIT, MIT, definitely. MIT, is nerdy. MIT goes yeah. a long way for Massachusetts being the nerdiest state. Any, like, NJIT, MIT, Institutes of Technology, they're science-based. The other people are like free-thinking fucking whatever, literature majors. Let's, let's devil's advocate this, though, for a second. Because California has Silicon Valley, the history of computing, all the stories about Waz and Steve Jobs and the blue box and Captain Crunch with the whistle and all the phone freaks, all those stories. And San Diego hosts Comic-Con. That's hard to... You want to talk about nerd culture, they do have the annual explosive celebration of it it's jersey versus california for nerdiness if we're if we're really trying to take this swing i think that's the right tension i think jersey versus california but i would argue that jersey wins just because the nerdiness here is so much more concentrated california is so many other things right whereas i think new jersey is just dense nerdiness oh that's interesting that's interesting because they balance it out with. We have more nerds per square mile than any other state. We're if we if if nerdiness were boost, New Jersey is the jug, California is the Slurpee, the boost Slurpee. Ooh. Now, because I do see what you're saying too. We've got Guidos in the Jersey Shore, Sopranos and Springsteen to dilute our nerdiness, but they have surfing. They have the entire entertainment industry. They have a lot of cool stuff to counterbalance their nerdiness. But nobody's really from there. Mm -hmm. It's a good debate. Now, Mike D, let's go through the list of some of the famous New Jersey nerds. You mentioned Albert Einstein. Um, We've mentioned Thomas Edison, of course. Uncle Floyd. Uncle Floyd. (laughs) Not on the outline. Not on the outline, but but sure. A worthy mention. (laughs) Definitely a nerd, Uncle Floyd. He's not... (laughs) Now, Mike D, a lot of people, you put Les Paul on the list. A lot of people think Les Paul, guitar god. I know you met him. Um, you lied about press credentials in high school to get into an event. A young Mike to D. Meet him. What makes him a nerd, do you think? So, Les Paul was a fantastic guitar player and entertainer, but he actually invented, he, he invented the electric guitar. That's a slightly up for debate fact but the modern electric guitar as we know it was invented by les paul and he also invented a number of and patented a number of other guitar inventions like tape echoes and all these different devices that later on went to become you know guitar pedals what we think of as modern effects so he actually changed the the instrument in a technological sense and a lot in some ways he's actually much more important as a guitar inventor than he is as a guitar player and i mean i love his music but you know the things that he invented like the the way of putting basically the important thing he did was he put electric guitar pickups in a solid body guitar which is what we think of as electric guitars today he was the guy who did that and when if you ever saw him play in person 
he would he would be playing what you would recognize as you know a Les Paul guitar like we all recognize, but it had a whole bunch of crazy boxes and knobs and switch switches attached to it, and he called it the Les Pulverizer. And these were all these homemade <laughs> inventions he attached to his own guitar so that he could you know basically loop his own stuff while he was playing and do echo and slap back all right on the guitar. So he's a pretty important. I mean, you know him and. Leo Fender are really the two guys that invented the, the sound of rock and roll. That's awesome. Now, you've listed some other inventors, uh, some I didn't know. I mean, you've mentioned Robert Wood Johnson. His name already came up. Johnson & Johnson, huge. Alice Parker invented the gas furnace in New Jersey. She did. The reason that, essentially the reason we can have safe, modern heat is because of Alice Parker. Um, you know, that she's the one who invented that. And actually, and she invented it in a way that it could be used in a mass setting in residential homes, which is the big thing. John von Neumann um, built computers in the 40s that remain the blueprint for modern computers. Yeah. Beatrice Alice Hicks, a pioneering engineer, shattered the glass ceiling for women in this field. I love it. Yep. The modern you know, prototype for women working in STEM. You know, she was the first person who just kind of went in and just thrashed her way around and said, yep, there's no difference here. Like, I can do this better than you can, men. What was her platform for doing that? Like, where was she out of? Like, what, um, she associated with, like, a lab or something like that or a large corporation when she was doing that? I feel like she worked at a couple of different places. Um, I'm just curious. There's just, it amazes me that there's, like, I mean, I guess because of where we are in our proximity in New York City, but um, production, development, you know. I know she worked at Western Western Electric, um, and she went to Princeton, and I think she's from one of the Oranges. She was born in Orange. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I knew she was like... Born in Orange, died in Princeton, the success story every Essex County mom dreams of for their kid. Oh, there you go. From Chilltown to Illtown, right? From Chilltown to Illtown. Look at that. And uh, I'm going to put something out here, too, which goes a long way. Excuse me, I have to sneeze. You can edit that out or leave it in if you want people to know that we're real. We are real people. I've been eating the whole time, drinking and smoking my last cigarette the whole time. So we are real people. Listen, I think that if you talk about fantasy authors... I mean, and there's a lot of great ones, but there's two that people are going to know if they're just casual readers or maybe not even readers. You're going to know Tolkien. The other one you're going to know, and people can debate if he'll ever finish his books, how good the books really are balanced against the TV show. The ending of the TV show was so bad. It's calling everything into question. does not change the fact. You want to talk about nerd culture. George R.R. Martin is a powerhouse who has helped define nerd culture and a native of Bayonne, New Jersey. Is alone. That goes a long way. He's responsible for the entire current fantasy revival that's been going on for the last 10 years. He revived that entire genre. And I think that's why even, you know, now you have all these D and D podcasts and all of a sudden D and D has become cool again, which we've always thought it was cool. There was never a day in our lives where we didn't love D and D, but I think George RR Martin, those books changed the way people thought about fantasy, um, for, for the current generation of people. 
And you'll be happy to hear that D&D, I thought of it. I go, okay, we have George R.R. Martin. I wonder if California can claim Gary Gygax. No. Nope. Chicago. I thought he was... He was born in Chicago is what I looked up. I might be wrong. Let me look this up. Where did you think he was from? I thought he was from Michigan or Wisconsin. <clears throat> That's where TSR was, right? Let's see. He was born in Chicago. He des- he died in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's yeah, that because that's where he yeah he's he was definitely a Midwest guy, and that was yeah Lake Geneva. So uh, I'm just gonna say right there, presence of George R. R. Martin as a native son that goes a long way towards our nerdiness credentials for sure. And let's not forget George R. R. Martin is nerdy not just in in terms of his uh, massive contributions to fantasy literature, but he also famously was an attendee of the world's first comic book convention, which was held in New York City, also attended by none other than New Jersey's The World listener, George Kopp, a.k.a. The Colonel's Dad. The General. See, The General? Colonel Carson Kopp, General George. <laughs> <laughs> which, when we found that, I found that out in the course of New Jersey's The World, I pieced it together because Carson's basement always had these sick pictures of old Marvel comics. And Carson at some point told me they were comics his dad used to own. He had photos of all of them. And uh, this, we've talked about this before. I forget if it was on mic or off, but it did lead to me tracking down a very weird book about the history of the first ever um, comic book convention where Carson's dad is interviewed in the in the in the end, like the postscript parts, and it's nuts. So George R. R. Martin was also there. That's crazy. Um, I want to put something out here too because I think there's nerdy music. And Mike, when you suggested Jersey being the nerdy estate, I thought immediately of my boys. Because look, Devo comes to mind, nerd music, Ohio. Okay, Kraftwerk is in Germany. They might be giants, I think, based out of Brooklyn, I believe. Some of the early Williamsburg adopters. What about the fucking Ergs, Nick? We got the Ergs. And what about the what about the nerds? We got the band called the nerds right and if i remember right they're a cover band correct one of the f- most famous jersey yeah. shore cover bands you're gonna find jersey shore legends yeah nick and i accidentally saw the nerds once at action park oh that's that's a jersey tale <laughs> like by accident <laughs> we have the band called the nerds we have the ones who laid claim to that and i'm telling you the ergs put out an album called dork rock cork rod okay turning dork rock into a palindrome and then putting out a fucking sick pop punk album. These three be spectacle boys. They put out another album called three guys, 12 eyes. And they legendarily used, they were so obsessed with the movie dirty work that they used to drive all over the country in their van. They recorded just the audio of dirty work. So when they couldn't watch dirty work on any given night, they could drive around the country, just listening to dirty work. Our patron saint nerdy Ben might be the Ergs, and I'll put them up against any other nerdy Ben you want to bring at me. Okay, and I'll—it's a tight—it's a tight run with the Ergs and other nerdy bands. I would throw in Egghead. No, no, no. Even they though were, they're uh, not from New Jersey, I don't think. Right? They, they started out. Uh, they all went to Ithaca and then moved to New York together. Uh, of course. I mean, look—the whole Mutant Pop Records that mm, lineage in the '90s. We we were blessed with a lot of very nerdy. You could even put the Mr. T experience in this in this discussion. Of, of course, uh, fucking Manor Astro Man, Servotron. There's a lot. There's a real good lineage of pop punk nerds. But oh, man, Manor Astro Man. I, I, I'll tell you, I'll put the Ergs up against anybody. 
They're helping to carry our nerd New Jersey lineage. Um, now, Mike, I love how you transition this outline because we've spent about 45 minutes talking about New Jersey's nerd credibility, credentials, people. I mean, the fact that Edison was here, I, I, I looked it up. I don't think George Westinghouse lived here, but one of the biggest Westinghouse facilities was in Newark. My grandfather worked there. A lot of science. Uh, and that, that maintains to this day through the pharmaceutical industry, research, and a whole lot of stuff. Not to be proud of. Um, but let's talk about our local experiences being nerds. Because you've brought up something near and dear to my heart that you and I both participated in. But we haven't talked too much actually about it, even though we both know that we did this, which was there was a stretch where computers were for people who were computer people. And then there was a time where the internet was in everybody's home. And then there was a window of time where a certain, if you were of a certain age, you were a kid who grew up and you were part of that transition. And we're right in that slot. And we both were experiencing very nerdy computer blossoming from being your one-on-one, -on -one, your phone dials another computer's phone modems to what we have now. And you and I haven't talked at length about it, but we're both actively participating in this like BBS scene of New Jersey. I have a, I mean, I, I was a major BBS kid. As was I, uh, as was I. That was my entire life <laughs> yeah. for a very long period of time. I remember that. How, I, what time period was that? You were probably, what were you, eighth grade to ninth grade? And Mike D was like, I forgot I had like the computer set up and we had the modem where you stuck the phone into it and all that. And I remember the dial was like, yes. And this was, it would have started before you guys hit high school. So we were still separate clicks. You guys were on your side of the town. Yeah. I was on my side of the town and there weren't many kids in West Orange who even knew about this. There was me and a few other kids from my side of town and you guys and a few from your other side of town, but there was an era before CompuServe and Prodigy those became AOL. Oh, yeah. And I think around Prodigy and AOL is when all of a sudden people started realizing that the internet was a thing they could access from home. Prodigy. This was where our moms found out about it. This was where a lot of people even our age did. But before that, there was a Wild West, the BBS, the bulletin board system, which would be that basically someone would set up a computer and plug their phone line into it. They were called the SysOp, System Operator. And they'd run software uh, that would allow you to f use your phone and dial their computer and people could upload files. So like for me, you could go find Star Wars pictures on certain BBSs that were known as like being cool ones for Star Wars. We'd find like Star Wars fan art. You could find games. You could find, yeah. let's be honest, right. pornography. And you could find the Anarchist Cookbook, aka the Jolly Roger Cookbook. <laughs> which I know I've never talked about it with Mike. You guys must have downloaded that thing. Oh, we were obsessed. Well, we had the, we had like actual hard copies of it. Right. Cause it was a book first, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was this underground thing and you had handles. You didn't use your real name and you'd start to see people's handles show up from board to board. And it was really kind of out of control and hidden and it's a world that was very alive that I don't think anybody's written much history on. 
and man, was it weird to be a part of. I'm surprised that hasn't like, I guess maybe nobody who's writing is, was that involved to know what was happening. You know? Well, I think it's also hard to track the history of it because these things, very often these, these BBSs would live for, if one lived for five years, that was, that would make it one of the elder statesmen. They'd live for a year or two, two or three years. And then the kid running it would go off to college or somebody would get tired of paying for a second phone line before prodigy and CompuServe, which then became AOL. And I would say AOL is when it became that everyone realized the internet was a thing you could have in your house. Um, that was around the era when it became, yeah, you got your PSENG bill and you got your, you know, you got this utility and that utility and the internet is just another utility bill for every household in America. Before that, BBSs were underground. It was generally computer to computer. If somebody, if there was a BBS that had five or six phone lines, so you didn't get a busy signal and there could be five or six people on it at a time, that was a badass system. That was, that was pretty rare. You would occasionally, most, most BBSs, especially in New Jersey, were like the one that I ran was you had an extra phone line in your house and literally someone else's computer would dial directly to your phone line. And that was it. And occasionally you would have people with money or more professional setups who would have two, three, four or five nodes. But those, that was definitely the, the exception. Um, and the other thing to remember is back then the, the price of phone calls, even if you were calling within the same area code, if you were like, for instance, if you were in West Orange and you were calling, you know, to, I don't know, Islin, that was a toll call. So I remember getting like crushed. 20 cents a minute. I got in so much trouble once because I found one that had this like treasure trove of Star Wars art and I was calling up and downloading it. But downloading pictures, it took a long time. Hours. And, uh, and it was in Whippany. And I didn't realize that from down the hill, Whippany was long distance. And my, my mom was furious at how much money I spent downloading Star Wars pictures from a BBS in Whippany. I once was severely punished. I'm sure Nick will remember. I think I was literally grounded for an entire summer because I racked up a several hundred dollar phone bill calling a BBS in Sparta to download a bootleg computer game copy of Street Fighter 2, which took like 22 hours. Mm -hmm. And now I know um, you mentioned it before you crossed over into something I didn't, which was that I mentioned the phone freaking culture before phone freaking kind of led to computer hacking. A lot of the best phone freaks who were in like the 60s and 70s who were figuring out how to manipulate the phone system and break into it. And when I say break into it, I don't mean like going to a building and breaking it. I mean using actual tones and clicks to figure out how to gain operator status from home phones and stuff. If you want to read about this, I find it fascinating. There's actually a very famous article called um, Secrets of the Little Blue Box that's all about the blind kids that, that kind of started this. And it's, it's great. But a lot of these hackers, the way they were transitioning first was you could build devices that would hack the phone system and that would allow you to do toll-free calls. And a lot of BBS kids, that was a very natural transition because the free calls helped circumvent these phone bills. And I know you crossed over into that. I never did. When I first got a modem, there was some older, 
you know, early digital hooligans in West Orange who it was actually the older brother of someone, Nick, who, who lived in our neighborhood. <laughs> and he gave me a bunch of programs. And one of those programs was what they called a war dialer. And what you would do is before you would go to bed at night, you would set up this war dialer on your Commodore. And it would literally just dial every number in an exchange. So in West Orange, it would dial six, six, nine, one, 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 two all night long. And then if anything answered that wasn't a human. So basically if you got another computer tone on the other end, it would flag it into a file. And then the next day you could go back and say, Oh, these five numbers are probably something interesting. And you would dial back with a modem and see what they were. And that was the way you could discover, okay, that's where, you know, the phone company has this, or that's where Rutgers has people get access. Like I remember pretty early on, I discovered you could access you know, early versions of Telnet through Rutgers Newark by doing that. So you would war, you would literally war dial around to try to find out interesting things in in the phone system. There were also printouts. I remember I I, I had a I met a guy. I must have been in like sixth or seventh grade, and Prodigy was around. And Prodigy was like an AOL precursor that wasn't as widespread. And I met a kid on there from Jersey who I traded him a copy of the X Wing video game. And he sent me back this printout. There were these kind of like underground printouts people would make keeping track of BBS numbers. And I mean like 30 pages long, all numbers. And then I was able to go through the ones that I'm like, oh, Caldwell, that's not long distance. Roseland, that's not long distance. And just start calling these different boards. But you have to admit, Mike, some of them, it would be like chat rooms. Some of them would have games on them. There's a lot of pornography. Door games. There was a lot of bomb making instructions. And you could get in over your head as a kid. I remember getting on some BBSs where they'd find out that I was like 12 or 13 and it was just, the sysop would just like be break in and chat. Like you generally, they would be set up a software where the sysop could stop whatever you were doing and initiate a chat with you. And when they found out how old I was, it would just click hang up on me and block my number. Cause I'm like, Oh, there's weird shit going on there. Um, but it was a cool world. It's a cool world. The interesting t- thing too is, you know, I, I pulled a list of, I mean, I know it's like the running joke that I can't help like research these things. I pulled a list of all the BBSs in the eighties and nineties from New Jersey. And there's, I was on that list earlier today as well. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of BBSs in New Jersey. So this was a huge scene here. So, and I think part of it is because New Jersey was a nerdy place. You have all these colleges, right, where people were learning about computer science early on. You had all these research institutions, all these pharmaceutical companies. And so it just naturally led to a culture where people early on were into computers. And so they started setting up bulletin boards, which I think is really cool. And there was, it was almost a, I mean, it wasn't like the punk scene, but the way it worked was very similar. It it definitely, it makes sense that you and I, responded to both because I know exactly what you mean. And there were local, it was weird because you never knew the people in person, but there were names that you'd see show up on multiple boards and you'd go, okay, that person's like a part of the scene. And that person's someone who, you know, in the same way with music where you'd go, oh, that person's at every show or that person organizes this thing. And that's important because the reason X, Y, and Z, I, I knew right off the top of my head, I go, the BBS I called the most was in Caldwell. It was called Cybernet 2. 
The sysop's name was Sneaky Pete, and they had a game on it called Food Fight, where you could, only one person could be on at a time. But the idea was that you'd win food fights in school, and that would allow you to buy better food items that were even more destructive for food fights. And they had a leaderboard, and you could challenge the person's the person directly above yeah. you and try to move up the leaderboard and take their spot. And at Edison Middle School, there were me and three or four other kids into BBSs. So it was like me, my brother, this kid, Chris Cipinelli, a few other people, and then kids from other towns. And I mean, we were teaming up. It would be like, you'd go to get on before school and we'd be like, some Chris Cipinelli would be like, I set my alarm for 5.45 in the morning and I signed on so that no kids from the other towns could get on. And we'd be trying to like team up and dominate and we formed a little click. So Cybernet 2 was a big one for me. There was one in Livingston called Flaming Tongue that I couldn't find any evidence of its existence on the internet, but I remember going on that. Um, there were a few others on that list that I remembered. Pirate's Cove, Pussycat's Playhouse, Doomsday Enema, The Vic, Lightning in a Bottle was Lightning a West Orange a one. Just when you said one. that, I couldn't remember the name of it. Somebody from West Orange ran one called Lightning in a Bottle that was really big. Earlier before, what Nick was saying is that we we ended up in this virtual turned real life battle with these BBS people, basically because, you know, like everything else, we were just yeah. minor league assholes and couldn't help ourselves but tor- tormenting people. And so there, there was a BBS called called the stratagem and it was like a very D D heavy bbs so we would go on it a lot and it's actually that board isn't on there but the sysop um who plays into the story his name is on that list for another board that i also knew so we had this ongoing battle with these people and it escalated into i'm gonna i know where you live i'm gonna track you down so the guy who ran the board who was on our side said hey look i'm going on vacation I need somebody to look after the board when I'm going to be on vacation. Would you do this? And again, at this point, we're Nick and I, we're 14 years old. So I was like, yeah, he's like, okay. He's like, I'll come and I'll drop you off the backup discs of my board in case anything happens. You can just put these in and restore this. And these are three and a half inch floppy disks at this time. So I'm like, okay, great. So I wait one night and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is a good time to come. It's a time when my parents are out. So we wait and this guy drives up and he is a full blown adult man. He is a, in his forties, he lives in Nutley and uh, he works at uh, Hoffman LaRoche and he drives up and he discovers that I'm a 14 year old kid. And I'm like, he must've felt so weird. His handle was hard drive. And so I come out of the house and I'm like, Oh, hey, hard drive. And he's like, are you chill? Chill was the name that I used. That was my (laughs) computer handle at the time. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, he's like, I didn't realize you were so young. And he's like, what what does your handle stand for? And I'm like, oh, chill, computer hackers in league. And he's like, oh, I'm like, what does your handle stand for? And he's like, hard drive. He's like, it's how I drive my car and how I make love to my girlfriend, Lisa. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And so he like gives me all these computer disks and he goes away on his vacation. Of course, two days into this, the BBS gets attacked and knocked offline. I can't figure out how to restore this. You know, I'm a 14 year old kid with 
basic computer knowledge. And so he comes back and he calls me and he's really mad and he's yelling at me and he wants to come pick up his computer disc and he comes to, to pick up the computer discs. And when he comes, my father comes out of the house and basically gets into a huge, not a physical, but a verbal, almost physical brawl with this man accusing him of being some kind of weird internet molester which he definitely was not he did not it was weird that he was hanging out with a 14 year old kid but he did not do anything inappropriate he was a nice he was a nice guy actually but and then after that my my parents attempted to monitor my bbs activities they didn't really understand what it was but that didn't really work out well did you you said you ran your own PBS. What was yours called? I had a whole bunch of different names. At one point, it was called Chill. At another point, it was uh-huh. called The Punisher's House. Because uh-huh. as you know, I was and still am a huge fan of The Punisher. Who ran the Lightning in a Bottle one? Do you know? I don't know who ran that. I just remember calling into it a lot. That was a big West Orange yeah. one. And then there was a real big North Jersey one called The Jungle. Yes. That one had multiple nodes. And I remember... like. For anybody out there going like, I, so what is it? You just call in and post on a message board and download files and stuff. There was also exciting shit. Like, like Mike D and I remember a stretch of the internet where they all started to team up these boards. And like before email was a thing, like there was a stretch when email didn't exist in life. And before it was perfected, it was a thing where you could go on some of these message boards and if they all ran the same software, they started figuring out you could send it around, but it might take literally four or five days for your email to show up. Like, cause basically you'd send an email on your, you know, you're dialing in to a BBS and Nutley and sending the email. And then at the end of the night, it's a system where that one dials in and uploads all its emails to one in this and it's passing it computer to computer till it actually physically calls the computer of the person you sent it to and delivers it to them. And emails taking four or five days was a thing. Am, am I remembering that right, Mike D? No, yeah. That, so that, that was called, like there were a couple different ones, but the big one was called Fido. And basically yeah. you would dial huh. in, check your messages. It would upload to that BBS. And just like you said, then they would upload it to this person and this person. And eventually the messages would make their way to, to where they they needed to go. And I remember being on the jungle when it was just a BBS and then they had like the multiple nodes, like 15 nodes in a chat room with 15 people in it at the same time, which felt insane. And then when the World Wide Web came out, I remember they were a BBS that offered, you could, it was, a, you could have a pay service where they were basically an early internet service provider. You could access the World Wide Web from the Jungle BBS, and that was a huge thing in North Jersey. You could tell that, yeah. Because that was before people had access to web browsers, and they were one of the first ones. And I looked it up. They were around for a very, very long time um, as like a small-scale local internet service provider. It's weird shit, man. It's weird shit. Well, door games were big on BBSs in New Jersey. You would call up and play Trade Wars and other games, which was like an an outer space role playing game. But you would you could you would call in, play one one or two turns, and then you would have to wait for someone else to come on and play one or two. So you'd have to sign out, hang up your phone, yeah. and then call back later in the day see, see what, what everybody else's turn. That's what Food Fight was was a door game. Um, 
it's it what a cool world i i feel like somebody should write a history of it but it was very ephemeral and hard to track and everybody used fake names that makes it hard well there's an excellent documentary that came out maybe about 10 years ago i think you can watch on youtube now called the bbs documentary that goes really deep into this. The other thing I would say, if people are interested in this, is there's a book called Cult of the Dead Cow by Joseph Carl Mann um, that's all about one of these early hacking groups, CDC, Cult of the Dead Cow. So there was all these these hacking groups that existed at the time. Um, and and his book is really great. I, I went and saw his book reading and was chatting with him for a bit. And he has a great grasp on why this stuff is so interesting. And that is the group that famously Beto O'Rourke wound up being a, yes. a, a part of. He, he was a member of CDC. And there was a lot of those groups that floated around at the Pretty time. Pretty awesome. And then, I mean, you've talked about C- CB radio, which was kind of associated with this world. I was never huge. I was big into police scanners, which was like an extension of that, listening to weird shit out over the scanners. But Mike, what is, Oh yeah. who are the coax cutters? What is this stuff you've posted here? I mean, Nick, Nick got me into this, right? Nick, you were the first person to get a CB that I knew. Yeah. I don't know how I, why, what interested me, but I remember um, being around somebody who had like a CB with 40 channels and then realizing like at, um, Radio Shack, you buy the three channels. And it always came with channel 14, and we realized that channel 19 was the trucker channel. So that was our big turn on sitting on the clips of 280 and talking to truckers. <laughs> and then also for like talking, um, it's like I wasn't allowed to have a phone line. Mike D was the only one that was cool enough to have a phone line. So like me and the neighborhood ninja and Mike D would talk on our, our walkie talkies instead because we could all talk on those. <laughs> and then we had. Nick got us into these CBs and we started talking to truckers and then that escalated into taunting truckers. And we were just like, Oh, we can taunt anyone we want. No one will ever find us. And we started taunting this local CB gang so much that one night they all came around in trucks in Jeeps and trucks and they big antennas. Yep. And they triangulated us. And they're like, we see you. We're coming to cut your coax. We're going to cut the cable on your house. And coax these are adult men who chased us. I mean, we were children. We were 13 or 14 years old. <laughs> they were like and they, losers, big time. they were chasing us around for hours. <laughs> we were hiding in the bushes while these adult men were chasing us around the entire time, threatening to kill us on CBs. So you guys had like a portable one, but they were able to triangulate there was, well, i had a, i had a whole base station i had set up with like yeah a, like a booster and then like where we sat on the middle of the hill in west orange and i had a slate roof so i had my antenna i had my antenna placed just so on the gutter that it was the signal was bouncing like it was projecting so far out and then i had extra juice going to it like a separate power <laughs> supply just to it so like I was able to boom out, and even Mike D from his house, like where we were geographically, we we were broadcasting over, like the lower half of like West Orange, like so all the valley and stuff like that. Like we were like clear signal, even with a, with a regular CB radio, you could like blast the signal out. So they just got tired of you guys like cluttering up the line, cursing at them and shit. Well, we were partly we were partly friendly with them, and there was of course like the one radio female voice that like all the other CB dudes like wanted to talk to was like Lady White or something like that. Lady White. Yeah. Lady White. There was a whole bunch of them. And then there was these guys that had these things that were like 
you put like effects on your CB. Like, there's no, the famous line is, there's no sideband on this channel. But like <laughs> echoing. And the guys, there would be other guys on other channels that would just sit there all night and go, be like, waste the jump. Like, like you imagine there's just somebody sitting somewhere in the garage wasted out of their mind like putting echo on a cb channel and then there's side channels to the main channels so there'd be like side channels where you could have like a separate conversation so it'd be like channel 39 like whatever like the next frequency down like just slightly different there's all that weird sideband action going on. It was like a very whole weird scene. And then, I, I mean, we could also talk forever about once it did become, I, I think the first major one I was on was Q-Link, which was kind of the Commodore 64 precursor to AOL. I think Q-Link maybe became CompuServe. Then I was on Prodigy and then AOL. And I was, Prodigy, yeah. I mean, we could get into the early days of the internet. My The most Jersey story I have... I became, me and this friend of mine, basically a guy I met on a Usenet news group about Andy Kaufman. We started fucking with people on the internet together and kind of trolling before that was a word. I still want to figure out what the fuck was going on. We somehow interacted with this man online who is from either Rahway or Linden, I remember. And he had a thing where he wanted to fight young kids. Mike D, you might remember this. This was when I lived on 203 Hamilton Street. And this guy used to message me on AOL and challenge me to fights. And I'd be like, dude, is this a sex thing? And he'd be like, no, I just like to fight. This was before Fight Club came out. He's like, I just want to fight. It was so weirdly rooted in some sort of, if not perversion, then like pathology. And it led to a thing... This guy, I had a friend in Hawaii. It's a very long, weird story, but I befriended this kid in Hawaii who was really adept at like hacking and, and manipulating internet stuff. And the, we used to dial this guy's, he gave us a phone number and we would dial it from the Hawaii line because I didn't want him tracking me down in New Brunswick. It was way too close to Rahway. I think he was in Rahway. Um, and he clearly had a phone line set up purely dedicated to fighting because you could call this fucking phone number at 4 15 a.m or 4 30 p.m and it would ring twice and he'd pick up and be like who is this you want to fight i'll fight you right now and we would just call and relentlessly fuck with this man and it was all through like this he just started i think he found me on aol and so i went to Rutgers and was just challenging Rutgers students to fights and for two years, I'd be like, all right, dude, let's set up a fight. We're going to meet at that playground. What was the playground? Like down near Robinson Street, but on the other side of Hamilton, if you remember. Oh, right, uh, yeah, yeah. I you know exactly what I'm talking I'd be like, we're going to meet under the monkey bars. All right, do you want to fight? Should we have weapons or no weapons? He'd be like, you tell me what kind of weapons. I'd be like, how about we each get a broom handle? Um, <laughs> fight with broom handles. Like this and that. Like. Like all, and I like for like 45 minutes, I'd be chatting him up and I'd be like, great, meet me in the fucking uh, playground. And then of course I wouldn't go, you know, or meet me at Tata's and I wouldn't go. And then my junior year, ruined this guy's I lived at the corner of Somerset and Plum and I lived across it from a church and I told the guy, meet me on the steps of the church. And, and then I watched from my window, I turned off all the lights and he fucking showed up 
And it was fucking weird, man. He was some weird middle-aged man looking to fight. I'm like, he's been showing up every time for two years that I tell him I'll fight him. And then every time for two years, he's, uh, he's getting stood up for these fights. But anyway, now I'm just rambling about all my early internet strange trolling and stuff, but we could talk forever. We could talk forever. There's one more I want to tell, and then I see one more that we have to with you. I do also want to say, in the early internet world, there was a guy who um, saw in my AOL profile that I went to Rutgers, and he... Oh, no, it wasn't. It was that I went to Rutgers, and I was working at Weird New Jersey at the time. So it used to be Mark MWNJ, Mark SW... Or Mark at WNJ, and Chris GWNJ were our AOL handles. And uh, it would in an era when it wouldn't have been weird to have business email addresses on AOL. But a lot of people saw that I was at Rutgers and saw GWNJ and didn't realize it meant Chris Gethard Weird New Jersey. They thought it meant Chris Gay White New Jersey. And I would sometimes be propositioned by guys. And one day I just got a link from a guy named Slapnutch Jeremy. And because I'm an idiot... And curious and love trouble, especially back then. I clicked on it. It was just a guy in the shower facing away, kind of looking cheekily over his shoulder. And I never forgot that name. And I was like, oh, this happens sometimes. It doesn't stand for that. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And then he, uh, I was like, no problem at all, dude. Good luck. Hope you, uh, hope you hook up tonight. He's like, haha, thanks. And then maybe five minutes later, he comes up again. He goes, do you think it would be gay if I blew you? I was like, dude, oh, again. Good luck with what you're looking for. Not my thing, but I appreciate wow, you slap nuts. And I always, I'd still laugh at that name. But Mike D, a very legendary Good old slap nuts. Tale. Yeah, good old slap nuts. Very legendary tale. Tell us about 196 pounds. This might be one of the more insane stories that our entire crew of friends was involved in. Because I think you were involved in this too, right? I know... Nick was around. You you were around. And part of the postscript involves me in particular. You and I didn't know each other. You were much more, you guys were still friends with my brother Greg at that point. Um, but I am involved tangentially, but I'll t- speak to that at the end. This is, I'm a, I'm a freshman at Rutgers. I'm living in a dorm. <laughs> and I'm basically at the tail end of my computer hacking, phone freaking days. And so I'm in a in a phone booth in one of the buildings at Rutgers, and I have a laptop, which I've borrowed from someone, and I have a phone coupler, which was a modem with little plungers on it that you would actually attach to the handset of a phone that would let you, right, that would, that would essentially let you use any phone as a modem. This was like even pre-plugging it into a jack. So I'm sitting in this phone booth, and I have a laptop and a phone coupler, And this kid walks by and he's like, are you paying for that call? And I'm like, yeah, it's a pain, man. You got to keep pumping quarters into the thing. I'm like, but you know, my roommate's on the phone in our dorm. I can't use it. And he was like, oh, I'll tell you a trick. I'm like, oh, it's a trick. He's like, just dial 196 pound. Then you'll hear a dial tone and you can dial whatever number you want for free. And I'm like, really? How does that work? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, I don't know how it works, but but it just does. So... I hang up the payphone, I dial 196 pound, I hear a dial tone, and I punch in on my modem that is plungered to the phone handset, uh, you know, the number of like a BBS somewhere far away, like San Francisco, and, you know, 30 seconds later, it goes through, 
And I'm like, whoa, like I'm on a payphone. I haven't put in any money and this thing is working. I'm like, this is kind of amazing. I'm like, well, this isn't really gonna gonna last. This has to be just a fluke. So I, I go back and to my dorm and I tell our <laughs> our crew our at that point we had a pretty well our entire punk rock crew was already formed. I'm like, hey, I'm like, I was just out in the you know, in one of the buildings and this kid told me a trick. He said, if you dial one hundred and ninety six pounds from a phone, you can get a free signal. They're like, oh, the, how should we see if it works? I'm like, actually, let's go check the call box. So in the front of every dorm at Rutgers at the time, they had a call box, which is basically a phone, the faceplate of a phone with no handset and buttons. And you could dial someone's dorm room number or their phone number and say, hey, let me in. And they would do that. So we go out to the call box. We dial 196 pounds. We get a, you know, a dial tone and we dial somebody's number and it rings. We're like, oh, wow, this is cool. So then we're like, well, let's try it somewhere else. So we start going around to different pay phones on campus. And some of our friends who have, you know, friends of theirs who live in faraway places, they start making long distance calls. We're like, this is amazing. And I'm like, guys, this is amazing, but let's never use this from our own phone. You know, none of us know what this is. Like, let's just kind of ride it out. But as long as we use it from a payphone or one of these call boxes, no one will ever be able to trace it. So, as a few weeks go on, we start telling all our friends. So, pretty soon after a week or two, everyone knows about 196 pounds. And again, like we were talking about, I. I have a little background in like hacking and being a phone freak. So I'm very paranoid about getting caught. So I'm like, well, but as long as it's not, you know, this is pre cameras everywhere. As long as you're not doing it from your home phone, you can't get caught. So I'm out one day and our dorm room at the time I lived with, with our good friend, him and I lived in a dorm together. So I come back to our dorm room one night and there's seven or eight people sitting around drinking and our one friend is everyone's like looking at him, staring at him, and he's got a phone in his hand, like an old school analog phone. And he's like, about six foot two, really well hung, <laughs> looking for some ladies to talk to tonight. I'll check back on the line in five minutes. Give me a call. And he hangs up and I'm like, what's going on? They're like, guys, we figured out you could use 196 pounds to call phone sex lines. And I'm like, oh, what? Gosh. I'm like, guys, like, I, I don't think it's a good thing to do it from the dorm. Like, no, 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 it's it's fine. Like, we've been doing this for a week now. We just didn't tell you because we knew you didn't want us to do it. Oh, and so the main activity for a couple of weeks at that point is a bunch of people would get together and they would all go and call up these like one nine, not 900 nine. It didn't work for 900 lines, but you could call those other like oh one one nine seven six lines. So they would go in the back of dirty <laughs> magazines and call all these lines. And sometimes it would be the ones where you would call and get a live person, but they would also call, there used to be these sort of, you know, voicemail exchange phone sex lines where people would call you back and they were Are doing this for hours and hours a day. It got to the point where they were spending 12 hours a day calling these lines. And it turned from, it started out as a funny prank and it turned to them like being really serious about this. So this goes on for weeks and the whole time, like, I don't think it's a good idea. We're You know, it's probably, you know, they're like, no, nothing's ever happened. They would have caught us by now. And I'm like, all right, long, you know. The semester, spring semester ends, everyone freshman year goes back home to, to do whatever they do. So 
I'm home during that year working whatever. Actually, I think that was the summer, Nick. You and I were working at Arthur's uh, Steakhouse. So I get a phone call from our buddy one day, and he's like in crying. And he's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. My parents, they just got this phone bill for $14,000. It's all these phone calls from Sao Tome. And, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but I think the only thing I could think of is that, you know, 976 oh number I was calling from my dorm room in Sao Tome was like, you know, $5 a minute. And somehow they connected the 196 pound thing to my phone. I was like, I told you, I told you not to do it from your dorm room. And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe nothing will really happen for it, you know, happen to it. It'll just go away. Then probably about a day later, I get a call from my college roommate. He's like, we got to talk. He's like, we just got a phone bill for $5,000. I'm like, what? He's like, all these phone calls from Sao Tome. And I was like, look, man, I was like, I'm not trying to shift the buck here, but I told you not to do this. I didn't do it. I'm not, I'm not jumping on the sword for this one. You know, so he gets a phone bill. Another friends gets a phone bill. At the grand total, it's something like $30,000 worth of phone sex calls from dialing 196 pounds. That is insane. And the, like, everybody's parents are calling the phone company to try to negotiate. They're like, look, there's nothing we can do. This isn't us. It all comes from this thing in South Tome. And oh there's literally nothing they can do. So a couple, one of our friends is literally working to pay off this 196 pound phone bill for several years. And another one, like his parents managed to negotiate a little bit. So it comes down to like $2,500. But at that point, you know, basically it had ruined several lives from just jokingly abusing phone sex with 196 pounds. It also be, you mentioned there, some of these guys were doing it hours a day and we should be clear one of the people mentioned this for, I, I won't say who, I mean, wound, wound up going down some rabbit holes, but this was one of the first things of just not attending college classes to instead be addicted to phone sex lines. Yeah. That, I mean, he spent... Eventually dropping out of college and, and having some real dark times. And I'm not saying this was directly responsible or that wasn't going to happen anyway, but this was a part of it. I think it was the, if you're straight edge and you drop out of college probably phone sex is a reasonable cause for that to happen. I mean, they were doing 12 hours a day of phone sex. And again, like I said, it started as a funny joke and then turned into a real, a real thing. You know, they were going out to buy dirty magazines just to get more numbers to call. Now, Mike D, I know that you had to, on some level, pay in to a degree because one of the first, you, you were always my brother's friend. And you were always nice to me, always liked each other. But one of our first actual one-on-one -on -one interactions was that summer, you sold me what can only be described as a fucking sick BMX bike for pennies on the dollar. And I never forgot that, obviously, because I was rolling around town in style. But I remember it was directly related to the phone fiasco. So I know... I don't know what deal you worked out with your roommate, but it seemed like you had to kick in some of it because I was riding a bike way beyond my station in life. If I remember, I sold you my, my mongoose all chromoly racing bike, which was a very cool BMX bike that I loved. And I think for like $80 or something I, like that. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I didn't have to pay anything, but I just felt bad because 
that person was my friend and I wanted to at least contribute a little bit, but I was a little bit bitter because I told them from the beginning to not do this from our, to, from your own phone. And no one listened to me. No one, no, excuse me. No one ever listened to me, but I knew like that it would come back. There's no such thing as $30,000 worth of free phone calls. That's just not a thing. Nikki Bonadich, would you say that there are some, this isn't some elements, the most, archetypal Mike D's story in the sense of he discovered a thing was smart enough to know how to use it then told the rest of us who we weren't smart enough to know how to use it and when I say we I mean I, I was not I was not present for this in particular but like Mike D figures out a thing that is quasi-legal or illegal or however you want to say it <laughs> Everybody else gets in trouble. And then invariably, I'm sure everyone else's parents are mad at you, Mike D, because all these other kids are probably saying you taught them how to do this, when you're actually the only one that didn't do it to ill effect. Nick, very on brand for the Mike D experience. True or false? Oh, definitely. And it was always like, you knew as soon as like, (laughs) like two or three other people found out it was just, that was it. It was like, we, I remember these moments of realization was just like, Oh, there goes that. Like we had our fun. Thank God. And now one of these idiots are going to ruin it. But yeah, that was Mike's, we call, uh, I call that Mike's deep immersion into any subject that he decides to wrangle in at the moment. So, but being, being friends with Mike D growing up in the same neighborhood, like I learned so much like great stuff that I didn't think, yeah, I never thought anything of the time. Now I'm looking back like the BBS thing. Like I, I totally forgot about that. I remember spending hours just hanging out and like Mike D had like a basement command post at one point where his uh, first BBS is downstairs in the basement. We just sit there and like wait for the, the screen to like dial in. Like, oh, I got in. You got in. Like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. I was like, I didn't know. It was D&D, BBS, smoking nutmeg. That's Mike D in a nutshell, though. Smarter than the rest of us to the point where he could figure out all the bad stuff. Smart enough to not use it himself. <laughs> well, it was not pleasant to have all the, like, when you're in college, to have all those other people's parents calling my mom and being like, and I was like, I think you're in college at that point. How are you going to blame me for other people being stupid? And at that point, my mom was like, I don't really care. Like, you're not my problem anymore. <laughs> I also love yeah, who cares? seeing all those kids have to figure out how to explain this to their parents in a way that doesn't, doesn't cop to it being phone sex. Well, the, like, so the discovery of, of it, navigate that. They, at first, they all tried to be like, oh, it must be some kind of mistake. I don't know what this is. And then one of the people's moms was just like, I'm just going to call one of these numbers. Ah! And she called it. And of course, within 10 seconds was like, oh, I get what happened now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know why you're calling Sal Tome for five hours at a clip. It was all the, the era of, what was it, uh? What was it? Six uh, six oh nine nine oh. What was what was the? I think it was not. They were like nine seven six oh one one nine seven six. Yeah, but remember, like that was like the big thing. Where it'd be like t shirts with like nine seven six. That was like the code for like you would like to go on sex lines. And then it was like real popular, like even on Channel Nine and Channel Eleven at night, they'd have like the party. Call the party line. Yeah. Find a date. Call the party line. Oh yeah. The mission statement tonight was to prove that New Jersey is the nerdiest state of all. 
we've got some severe side roads about BB systems and phone sex lines and, and phone freaking and all sorts of stuff that's fascinating. But let's just circle it up in the end and say, I don't know if we've proven Jersey nerdier than California. A lot of people are going to stick to the MIT thing. I think we've put it in the discussion. And I want to hear other examples from the Jersey people out here getting behind this. I want you to go on the Patreon. I want you to tweet at me your examples of New Jersey nerdiness. If you're from one of the other states, you want to fight us. We are, of course, from New Jersey. We're always down for an argument. So let us know. Wait, you mean we're not going to physically fight other people? I mean, we could. We could. <laughs> Our nerd asses will kick your nerd asses. And if you are a New Jersey BBS kid that knows us, please oh, get in God. touch. Yeah, reach out. That'd be so funny.